You're listening to Politics Weekly. To uh, be big underdogs uh, in the race uh, for the uh, the presidency. One of them is uh, joining me today. We can survive all those systems. What's going to happen if you legalize it completely? Politics Weekly is a podcast on politics, news, and principles. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. Well, we did it, guys. Uh, We got Donald Trump. We got President Donald Trump on the podcast. Just kidding. But we do have his impersonator, uh, Mr. Eric Jackman. Uh, Mr. Jackman, thank you for joining me. Hey, man. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. Now, you have a, a podcast of your own. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I do a podcast with my twin brother called Jackson Radio. We've been doing it for about four years. And, um, you know, it's, it's a mixture of pop culture, politics, current events, foreign policy, entertainment, and other people in the media. And my brother and I just get together and riff on the news and talk about whatever is on our mind and interview really interesting people. We've had quite a uh, very very group of guests come on our show. Anyone from former CIA officer John Kiriakou, who blew the whistle on waterboarding and torture, all the way to George W. Bush's chief of staff, Andy Card, who whispered into Bush's ear on 9-11 in the classroom down in Florida. So we, uh, we don't really take a left or right Democrat or Republican approach to things. We're independents, and um, we really enjoy talking to people from all across the political spectrum. Now, uh, you uh, are a Trump impersonator. Uh, you've been uh, you've been impersonating Trump, uh, uh, Donald Trump, for a while. Do you want to give us your best Trump impersonation? Look, I just came from the Bernie Sanders rally, and Bernie Sanders is a total disaster. He wants to turn America into Venezuela. Okay, socialism is disgusting. It's never going to work. He wants everybody to get free Ben and Jerry's ice cream, and I think that it's a total disaster. We need capitalism. We need greed. We need greedy. Okay, I'm really greedy. I love women. I, I love women so much I married three of them, okay, and I made money on those deals. But we are going to keep America great, and we're going to make America great again, and we're going to win so much. You're going to get tired of winning, but not really. <laughs> so, uh, how long have you been doing uh, Trump impersonations, and what uh, got you into starting to do that? I've been professionally impersonating Trump for uh, over three years. I've been doing his impressions, I've done impressions my whole life with my brother. We've always done comedy and impersonated people. It really started with our teachers. When we were in middle and high school, we used to do the high school talent show, and we get our teachers' permission to do their impressions in front of the whole school, and uh, they go over really well. And that's kind of just always what we were known for. We were known for doing really good impressions and kind of, you know, poking fun at people, lampooning them, but trying to do it in a tasteful way without it coming across as being mean-hearted, which it's not. And uh, Donald, Donald Trump came on my radar in 2006 when he had his feud with Rosie O'Donnell when she was one of the hosts of The View. He was hosting one of his stupid beauty pageants, and one of the winners or the 
big big shots in the pageant. She got caught drink underage drinking or partying in New York. Typical stuff. And Trump made a mistake, and I think she, she, she'll be able to compete. She's a beautiful girl. She's very smart. She's going to be great. And then Rosie O'Donnell picked up on that and on The View made fun of Trump and kind of wished her hair to the side and did a funny Trump impression and lampooned him, which was really funny. And then Trump responded by having Access uh, Entertainment Tonight come up to Trump Tower, and he proceeded to spend five minutes just eviscerating Rosie O'Donnell. He went, well, Rosie O'Donnell's disgusting. I mean, you look at her, she's a slob. She, she talks like a truck driver. She's very unattractive both inside and out. Rosie is a person who's very lucky to have her girlfriend. And she better be careful because I'll send over one of my friends to come pick up her girlfriend. Why would you be with Rosie if you could be with somebody else? And if I were Barbara Walters and I was running The View, I'd fire Rosie. I mean, I'd look her right in that big, fat, ugly face and I'd say, Rosie, you're fired. <laughs> so... I saw, I, saw, I saw Trump do that and I said, holy shit, Donald Trump is a madman. This guy's crazy. And since then, I've just been fascinated by him. And when he decided to really run for president in 2016, I couldn't believe it was happening. And I knew that I had to get my impression out there and get a, a character going based on it and dress like him and get a wig, put it all together. And up here in New Hampshire, where I live, we have the primary. So the, the whole world's press comes to our state to cover the primary. And, and Donald Trump turned the thing into a circus on steroids. <laughs> now... You actually aren't a Donald Trump supporter. You are a supporter of Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, what got you? Uh, what um, got you to being a supporter of Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, and what views does she have that uh, you personally uh, agree with that got you to support her? Yeah, I mean, I, my my impression is not blind hatred of Trump and not blind love of him. I try to just make it reality and put a mirror up to the whole thing of how absurd it is and how absurd people get who really love him and how absurd people get who really hate him. Um, but with Tulsi Gabbard, she came on my radar actually when she was first elected to Congress. She was only she was like 31 years old and she was this young, brand new face from Hawaii who had served in Iraq and is still currently in the Army National Guard. She's a major in the Guard. So I was very intrigued by her background and her message and the fact that she ran opposed to a war that she had served in. And I've always been opposed to the Iraq War. I remember protesting it when I was in high school. They were really amping the thing up in 2003 when I was a sophomore in high school. And I knew it was wrong then, and obviously I've been proven right that it, that it was wrong. It was a bad idea. But I was very fascinated and intrigued by this millennial congresswoman who was only 31 years old getting elected to Congress who was the first, uh, one of the first female combat veterans to ever serve in Congress. But she was on my radar then, but she really, like many people, came on my radar in 2016 when she took a hard stand and had been given a plum co-chairmanship of the Democratic National Committee, which for anyone else who wants to be a career politician or follow a certain trajectory, they would never do anything to jeopardize that. And when Tulsi Gabbard, in her capacity as co-chairwoman of, of the DNC, found out what Debbie Schultz, uh, Watts, uh, Wasserman, Wasserman Schultz was doing, Donna Brazil, basically what the DNC was doing to Bernie Sanders when she found out that the whole thing was a scam and an anointment for Hillary Clinton, Tulsi Gabbard took a principled stand and resigned from the DNC and endorsed Bernie Sanders, which 
I thought took a lot of courage. It took guts. And it showed to me that she was a real maverick and somebody who is not just going to be a blind lemming and a sheep and go along with what her party says she should do. She followed her conscience and she followed her heart and she did what she believed was right. So that really put me on her radar and I said, that is a leader right there. That is somebody that I want to get to know. That is someone that I believe has a very bright future in American politics and could absolutely either serve in a cabinet or be president of the United States one day. Now, uh, you've actually met Tulsi Gabbard uh, on a few occasions. What was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I consider Tulsi a friend. I, I, I know her. I've, I've gotten to know her pretty well. Um, the first time I met her was December of 2018 when she was testing the waters of running for president. She kind of had made it clear that she was thinking about it, but she hadn't 100% announced that she was going to do it. So I went to an event that she was doing in a town called Exeter, New Hampshire, and I drove about two hours on the day of a big Patriots football game, and, you know, I could give a shit about the Patriots, and uh, I got interviewed by Hawaii Press, who was following Tulsi, and said, wow, you would rather drive two hours in, you know, crappy conditions to come see Tulsi Gabbard and watch the Patriots? And he quoted me and ended up in New York Magazine, I said, Tulsi Gabbard is more important to me than Tom Brady in some stupid football game. And all I had to do was see her speak for an hour and, and meet her and talk to her. And I knew, I, I told her right then and there, I said, Tulsi, if you decide to run for president, I'm going to do everything I can to help your campaign in New Hampshire and use any abilities and um, sway that I have in my little neck of the woods to help your campaign. And then flash forward um, to February when she announced that she was running. I knew that I was all in. And, you know, we stayed in touch after that event. In December, um, I connected with her campaign, and Tulsi personally messaged me and, and stayed in touch, and we've been in touch ever since, and I've helped plan probably half a dozen events up here in New Hampshire with her campaign, and um, I had her sit down with me on my podcast, Jackman Radio, for an interview, and I'll just tell you, Tulsi's a real person, man. She's a real human being. She's not, um, you know, 70, 80-year-old career politician who's been in the Washington swamp for 40, 50 years, you know? She's... She's a fresh face. She's a breath of fresh air. And uh, I've just found her to be a really straightforward and, um, you know, honest and relatable person. And plus, I really, really like that she's only 38 years old. I'm going to be 33 in October. But she's only five years older than me. So she can really relate to a younger generation, which we are going to be the future leadership in this country. Now, she's not the only candidate you've met in the past. You've also met... uh other people you've also met other candidates running uh like uh obviously you were at a bernie sanders event today um you um you've met pete Buttigieg, uh you've met uh elizabeth warren uh you've met julian castro marianne williamson just to name a few people um what was what's it like getting to meet uh all these big political figures well, it's really cool. I mean, you know, I'm a political junkie, and I'm obsessed with politics, and I don't take for granted this role that New Hampshire has in our election process. I don't take the New Hampshire primary for granted at all, and um, I just think it's really interesting that we're the small state of just a little over a million people, and if you want to become president of the United States, you have to come through our state and meet face-to-face with us, take our real questions that aren't screened or vetted, and listen to our concerns and meet with real people who aren't like the mega rich or big Wall Street donors or big Hollywood people um, or corporate people, just your everyday average citizen 
who works 40, 50, 60 hours a week to pay their bills, keep a roof over the head and keep their family going. So it's a very unique thing and we take it very serious here in New Hampshire. So going back to really the 2004 election, that was the first campaign I was really involved in and I volunteered for John Kerry's campaign. I was a uh, junior in high school, so it was the first election I could vote for and uh, my brother and I helped get John Kerry to come to our high school. He touched down in a helicopter and came in and, and did a big event at the gym and the campaign let us ask him a film a question um, and ask him a question one-on-one -on -one after the event so at that point man i was hooked i'm like this is really cool I'm, I'm not a millionaire i'm not like who am i i'm a nobody but i get to i get to ask these politicians and would-be presidents questions of policy that's on my mind and things i'm concerned with so it's really cool man i really i really enjoy meeting the politicians and people running for president and it's especially refreshing when you're an independent like I'm in. You're, you're not boxed in by left or right or Democrat and Republican. So two weeks ago, I was at the Trump rally with 10,000, well, almost 20,000 people who just love Donald Trump and worship the ground he walks on. And then tonight, like I told you, I just got back from a Bernie Sanders rally here in Peterborough, where I live, where there were 700 people who love Bernie Sanders. So... It, I'm a big picture guy, and I just I really enjoy the access we get here, and um, the cool and unique stories that come out of being in New Hampshire and meeting these people who one day might be president or vice president or have a role in the cabinet. So it's definitely a really cool thing. Um, and uh, you you've said that you've had a lot of big interesting guests on your show. Um, who do you think? Um, if you don't mind me asking, who do you think was uh, the best guest you had on? Well, one of my early interviews was with former Minnesota Governor Jesse Ventura. I don't know if you had a chance to see that, but um, he was before I, before I launched my Politics and Pints series. Um, I got an hour with Jesse Ventura at a bar in uh, Brooklyn, New in New York City, and Jesse has always been someone I've been incredibly fascinated by and I've looked up to and kind of found to be an oddity in American politics in that he wasn't a Democrat or a Republican who got elected. He's this larger-than-life figure who was a wrestler, a Navy SEAL, an actor, a mayor, a governor, um, you know, who's always been really a straight-talking kind of guy and really, in my view, tells it how it is. And whether you agree with him or not, you know, you respect him and you know where the guy stands. So I had an hour with him, and that was just fascinating. I got to ask him whatever I wanted and talk to him about his career and... Um, you know, get to hear his take on current events. So that was that's definitely up there, one of my favorite interviews. And then my first interview for Politics and Pints on Jack and Radio was with Andrew Yang. Okay, uh, well, with that being uh, said, why don't we get into the news uh, of the week? So the first news is involving uh, the 2020 uh, presidential debates, the de uh, Democratic primary debates. Uh, this time, there will only be one debate. Unlike last time, where there were two nights of debates, this time there will only be one. There, there will only be one night of debates. Uh, it will be held on ABC and Univision uh, at on September on Thursday, September twelfth, twenty nineteen, uh, from at eight p.m. to eleven p.m. The moderators will be Lindsey Davis, David uh, Muir, George Ramos, and George Stephanopoulos. We now know a list of candidates that will qualify. There were 10 that made it and 10 that did not. 
the 10 that made it included uh, former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden, uh, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, uh, California Senator Kamala Harris, South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, businessman Andrew Yang, New Jersey Senator Cory Booker, former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke, uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, and former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro. Uh, notably absent from the field includes uh, Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, um, businessman Tom Steyer, author Marianne Williamson, uh, Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, uh, New York, New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, uh, former uh, Maryland Congressman uh, John Delaney, Ohio Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, Miramar, Florida Mayor uh, Wayne Messam, and former Pennsylvania Congressman Joe Sestak. Uh, it should be noted that three of the candidates I just uh, mentioned, including Steyer, uh, Messam, and Sestak, did not make it onto any of the debate stages. Um, but as you can see, there are far fewer candidates. Um what are your thoughts on uh, the current lineup uh, of candidates uh, in the fee- in the Democratic uh, debate? Um, and what are your thoughts on the debate overall? Yeah, I mean, you know, being a Tulsi Gabbard supporter and someone who is helping her campaign here in New Hampshire, I'm obviously very disappointed that she's not going to be on the stage. Um you know, certainly it's not an end-all, be-all. It doesn't mean her campaign just doesn't exist or ends. But obviously it's a huge platform and a helpful thing to get your message out there when you're an underdog campaign. Um, and I did have the chance to go to the debates in July uh, out in Detroit. Uh, Tulsi got my got me a ticket for myself and my cousin. And, and uh, it was just cool. It was cool to be there and to see it and be in the mix. You know, unfortunately, these debates don't really allow the candidates to really get their message out there of who they are and what they're all about. The, the media is looking for a viral moment, something where they can pit two candidates against each other. There can be an attack. There can be a rebuttal and turn it into a sensational uh, media news moment to get views and help advertising dollars. You know, Bernie Sanders made the point that the... Um, I think pharmaceutical companies or healthcare companies are going to be advertising during these debates. So, you know, take that with a grain of salt and uh, you know, will affect what's said here on the stage tonight or what the moderators ask. But I think largely, man, you know, it's, it, the debates are kind of a dog and pony show. You don't really get a lot of substance out of it. It's just kind of more fluff and media hype. But, um, you know, the lineup will be good. I'm excited for Andrew Yang. I'm glad Andrew Yang is in the debates. Obviously, I met him early in the process and had him come on my podcast. And I think the universal basic income is um, an interesting idea and something that should be debated. I think there's some some value to it and some merit to it. You know, we have uh, Bernie will be up there, obviously, Liz Warren. Um, But I I just feel like, you know, one of the reasons I'm on board with Tulsi is her foreign policy views and her credibility on the issue of war and peace. And it's just kind of unfortunate that voice is not going to be up there and given the podium. So we're confident that she's going to make the debates in October because the criteria 
is staying the same, and she's only two poles short of uh, reaching that qualifying mark, which is she's hit 2% in over 26 poles, but the DNC only recognized a hand of them, uh, a handful of them, rather, which is, you know, in my opinion, stupid because some of the polls she qualified in um, were very legitimate and credible and reputable sources like the Boston Globe and The Economist, and they didn't count them for whatever reason. So I just would like the DNC to be more open and transparent about how they decide which poll counts and which poll doesn't, because you're really only talking about two or 300 people receiving a phone call and saying, I'm for X, Y, and Z candidate, and then that being a determination for amount of support. Because Tulsi has a lot of support up here in New Hampshire. Her signs are everywhere. We've got billboards everywhere. And there's a lot of people who probably normally wouldn't vote in a Democratic primary or thinking about doing it because there's something about Tulsi's message and her platform that appeals to them. So I think it'll be good that there's only 10 candidates. I mean, you talked about Wayne Messam. I mean, no one knows who he is. Um, de Blasio, in my opinion, is just a loudmouth from New York City who loves the sound of his own voice. So I don't think we're missing much not having him in the debate. Um, Senator Bennett is a pretty good voice for someone who claims they can beat Donald Trump um, and have that kind of Midwest, that Western appeal being a senator. Um, and then, you know, of course, obviously I'm bummed Tulsi's not there. And then Tom Steyer tried to buy his way in. I mean, let's just be honest about Steyer. The guy ran around our country for the last two years saying we need to impeach Donald Trump, getting people's email addresses and putting together this insane email list and saying, you know, I'm not running for president. My goal is to impeach Trump. And then he turns around and announces, yeah, I am running for president. And then proceeds to spend probably over $10 million in the early states like Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, and Nevada to qualify for the polls, and he missed it by one. So I don't know that Steyer is going to be too credible of a voice saying, let's get rid of one billionaire for another. You know what I mean? Um, which is what is refreshing is that he couldn't buy his way in. So that's, that's good to see. But I think ultimately Steyer and Tulsi will make the debate in October. And then uh, Marion Williamson is an interesting person. I had her on my podcast um, for an interview. I don't think she'll be president, but uh, she's bringing up some things that need to be talked about, and, and her approach kind of as an outsider is, uh, you know, kind of, kind of the angle she's going for. Um, now, uh, Steyer himself said he believes that the DNC should change uh, the rules uh, to make the debates uh, more inclusive to uh, some of the lower-tier candidates. Uh, do you agree with him? No, I don't think you should change the rules in the middle of the game. I mean, you know, the DNC, to their credit, is trying to be more transparent than they were last time, for obvious reasons, you know, because they, they would lack serious credibility, and they do in some ways lack a lot of credibility. But I don't think that, that the rules should just, like, just overtly be changed, you know what I mean? But um, I would just like them to be more transparent about why X, Y, and Z poll counts, but this certain polls don't count. Um, but yeah, they don't need to change the rules. Um, it should also be noted that the uh, next debate uh, will be in Ohio on October 15th, uh, if anyone is wondering. Uh, but let's move on to the next story which is another one involving the 2020 presidential election. We know, now know that there will be uh, one fewer candidate uh, in the 2020 uh, race. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand uh, has dropped out of the 2020 presidential election. 
Uh, Joe Brand uh, got in as a uh, when Joe Brand got in, many people viewed her as a top tier candidate. However, she only averaged around one percent uh, in uh, in polls. In most polls, uh, Joe Brand failed to make the qualifications for the third debate and has announced that she will be dropping out. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on uh, Kirsten Gillibrand uh, dropping out from the 2020 presidential election? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Gillibrand was a uh, pretty well-oiled machine man. She was able to raise millions of dollars. She's obviously a high-profile senator from New York, has her background in um, advocating for sexual assault victims in the military, which she's actually worked with Tulsi on, uh, which has been a good issue. But, um, you know, she carried, there was some baggage there. Obviously, uh, when we heard about her dropping out, Al Franken's name was mentioned a lot because Gillibrand really led the charge in getting Franken to resign from the Senate for the allegations that he inappropriately touched some women. Um, And depending on how you look at that, some think that that was a rush to judgment. He wasn't given due process and a fair hearing on that by the Senate Ethics Committee. And then some people think, well, yeah, Gillibrand did the right thing, and uh, she's on the right side of this, and uh, Franken should have resigned. So she had that working against her, um, or just at least in the mix with her campaign. But she, you know, a lot of people here in New Hampshire I talked to like, they liked her. You know, they liked her campaign and what she had to say, but she just kind of never really caught on, you know. She kind of never really, uh, beyond um, the women's rights issue and, paid maternity leave a lot of people couldn't really tell you a lot about her I think she kind of was pigeonholed with those issues so I don't think her campaign really got the chance to break out or differentiate itself from the other campaigns and especially we're seeing we we have many women in the race so we have we have Jill, we had Gillibrand we have Klobuchar we have Williamson Kamala um, and Tulsi and Liz Warren so you have six women who are in the mix up there with the more than 20 candidates. So in any other year, you know, Gillibrand probably would have stood out a lot more. I mean, even last time around, if it was just her and Hillary as two women up there. So you kind of had that working against her too. She wasn't the only woman in the race. And um, yeah, I just, I just think kind of uh, she was a a victim of a large crowd and in any other race, if there was less candidates, I think she would have had a better shot. All right, let's move on to the next story. So, uh, uh, outside of the Republican and Democratic primaries, don't forget about the parties down the ballot, such as the Libertarian primaries and the Green Party primaries. Uh, Right now, the Libertarian Party may have a bigger recruit on their hands uh, in former uh, Rhode Island Governor Lincoln Chafee. Uh, Chafee... Uh, who became uh, senator, uh, f- who has served as senator from 1999 to 2007 as a Republican after the death of his father, John Chafee, who was also a senator, uh, in which he was appointed to his seat, and who served uh, as uh, governor of Rhode Island, elected as an independent uh, in uh, 2010 and served from 2011 to 2015, uh, ran for president uh, as a Democrat in 2016. Uh, however, he didn't uh, gain much traction. 
uh, and uh, uh, dropped out in fall of 2015, eventually going on to support the party's nominee, former U.S. Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Uh, however, Chafee now expressing interest in getting back in the political game. Uh, a few months ago, he changed his party registration once again to Libertarian, and he is now expressing interest uh, in running as a Libertarian. Uh, a group uh, to draft uh, Chafee for president as a Libertarian uh, has been started, which is now fueling speculation that he could seek the party line uh, to run for president. Eric, what are your thoughts on Lincoln Chafee potentially seeking the Libertarian nomination for president? You know, I'll tell you personally, I like Lincoln Chafee. Um, he was a guest on Jackman Radio when he was in the mix there in the primary for 2016. He was running against O'Malley, Jim Webb, Bernie, and Hillary. And, you know, the thing that really stands out to me about Lincoln Chafee, and which will give him a lot of credibility on foreign policy with the Libertarians, is his no vote on the Iraq War um, in 2002, leading up to the Iraq War resolution. Um, I got to talk to him about this, and Lincoln told me that he went to CIA headquarters at Langley, and he met with the analysts, he met with the higher-ups there, and he said, show me, show me the proof that Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. Show me the link between 9-11, Al-Qaeda, and Saddam Hussein. Show it to me. And they weren't able to do it. They weren't able to show him any proof that Saddam Hussein was involved in 9-11 or that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction and was a direct threat to the United States. So with that knowledge, Lincoln Chafee, who was a Republican at the time, went back to the Senate for the vote, and he voted no on it. He voted as conscious, and he voted what the evidence told him. And history has proven Lincoln Chafee to be right. And he was really only one of a handful of senators, the only Republican senator to vote no on the war. Um, so I have a lot of respect for him in that regard, you know, because at that time, if you were against the war or you wanted to put the brakes on going to war and overthrowing Saddam Hussein and invading a country and destroying it and killing, you know, now over a million people, you were looked at like you were a traitor, you were an American, you were a terrorist sympathizer, you know, they took, they knocked down the World Trade Center, we need to go after them over there. Well, Lincoln Chafee was like, well, we need to understand what's happening here. We need to understand what would the fallout be from overthrowing Saddam Hussein. Well, who's going to lead after Saddam Hussein? What's going to be the alternative? And obviously we didn't think that one through, but he had the foresight and the wisdom on that issue to say no to the war and ultimately was proven correct on his vote. But, um, you know, on a personal level, I like Lincoln Chafee. I think he's, he's a likable guy. Um, he's kind of, as you said there, he's changed parties a few times. But, uh, you know, he comes from a kind of an old New England blue blood uh, family that is very, very wealthy. I think Chafee's net worth is somewhere between 30 and 50 million. So what would be attractive to the libertarians is to get some of those money bags, some of that money injected into the party so they can promote their message and their platform. And certainly they would be open to Chafee doing that. Um, but, yeah, I would, I would think it would be great if Chafee ran. He, he's, a, he's a name. He's recognized. Obviously, if you're not, you know, uh, everyday political observer, you might not know who the hell he is. But it, it couldn't hurt the libertarians to get him in there to run. And then I'm also hearing that Justin Amash is thinking about running the congressman from Michigan who left the Republican Party and went independent um, because of Trump and, and just the direction that the party's going in. 
um, away from fiscal responsibility, which is what AMASH is all about. So I kind of look at Justin AMASH like a millennial Ron Paul, kind of a more modern, younger version of Ron Paul, carrying that liberty message. And uh, I think he'd be formidable, too, if he does decide to run, because he does have some name recognition, and obviously, like Lincoln Chafee, has a voting record that could be dissected um, and looked at and analyzed for libertarians. All right. Uh, let's uh, move on to the next story. Uh, so uh, the next story is involving a Senate race uh, in Georgia. So uh, previously it was thought that Republicans would have to defend uh, a seat in Georgia in 2020 in the U.S. Senate, that seat being held by David Perdue. Uh, however, it now seems as though they will have to defend two seats. They'll have to defend both seats in Georgia. Uh, the current uh, Senate uh, holder of one of the seats, Johnny Isaacson, uh, announced uh, this week that he will be resigning from his seat at the end of the year, which will trigger a special election in 2020. Uh, this means that uh, Governor uh, Brian Kemp, the Republican governor of Georgia, will get to appoint uh, a um, a uh, a rep- will get to appoint a new person to replace Isaacson. Uh, in that seat. There will have to be a special election, as I said, next year. Um, But uh, right now, John Ossoff, uh, the um, John Ossoff being the, uh, a documentary uh, filmmaker uh, who uh, ran in a race uh, for, uh, for in a special election for Georgia's sixth congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives in 2017, has expressed interest uh, in uh, seeking out that seat. Uh, Stacey Abrams, uh, the uh, Democratic candidate for governor of Georgia in 2018, has said she will not run. Uh, On the Republican side, uh, three Republicans are being uh, looked at to replace Isaacson as an appointment. Uh, Right now, Chris Carr, the Attorney General of Georgia, Doug Collins, the uh, congressman from Georgia, and uh, jo- uh, jo- Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor from Georgia, are all being looked at as potential appointments. Uh, Nick Ayers, the former chief of staff to Vice President Mike Pence, was rumored uh, to be a-, a potential appointment. However, Ayers is now saying uh, that he uh, is not interested in the position. Um what do you, many Democrats think that this could be a seat that they could pick up? Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts on uh, the uh, potential for? What are your thoughts on Johnny Isaacson retiring, and do you think this is a seat Democrats could pick up? Yeah, well, uh, you know, Georgia obviously is a very conservative place, and uh, Democrats. I don't think historically, well, maybe in the last 20 or 30 years, I've had much success there. Um, you know, obviously you have Newt Gingrich is from there. And then the former senator there was a conservative Democrat, Zell Miller, um, who was in there in the early aughts. But, uh, I mean, Stacey Abrams showed that, uh, you know, kind of like what Beto did in Texas, that Democrats could, could be competitive in places where they don't think they can be where they should actually run and get out there and meet people 
go to places uh, that are typically conservative and they feel like they might not have a chance, but if they actually just go up there and meet the people and talk to them, offer their platform and say, maybe I have other ideas that the Republicans don't have or I want to hear your concerns, that, that they could actually be competitive. But um, that's interesting. I know that Johnny Isaacson is uh, hes an older guy, so he's going to be resigning from the Senate effective December 31st yes. of this year. And he is 74, so he's going to be 75 when he resigns. So I think he's in, I don't think he's doing too well health-wise. He's an older guy, and he wants to, he wants to enjoy what time he has left. So, um, you know, good for him on that front. But, yeah, obviously if the governor can appoint, um, you said the governor was a Republican? Yes, obviously. Brian Kemp. Mm-hmm. So he'll want to pick someone um, to hold that seat, obviously, who's a Republican, and who won't, um, unless Kemp wants someone in there who he feels he can appoint and then has a chance at winning, actually running outright for the seat, he'll do that. But if not, he'll pick someone who can hold it until they can find a formidable challenger or someone who the Georgia Republican machinery can get behind. So that would be interesting. So you said Mike Pence, his chief of staff, might run? He was rumored to be appointed, but he put out an email saying that he had no interest in being appointed to that seat. Interesting. And then I think Abrams wants to be on the ticket for vice president mm. or in a cabinet. So I think that's probably why she's not running on the Democratic side. Because um, obviously she became a national figure and she almost won that race um, for governor, which a lot of people were very surprised about, much like how well Beto did in Texas against Ted Cruz. So uh, that's interesting. That's going to definitely be one to watch, man. I mean, I would probably put it in the safe Republican column. But uh, you can't ever rule anything out, man, so we'll have to keep an eye on it. Well, and he is not the only Republican in Congress resigning. Uh, This week, uh, Wisconsin Congressman Sean Duffy announced that he will be resigning uh, uh, towards the end of September. Uh, Duffy, who's represented Wisconsin's 7th Congressional District in the U.S. House since 2011, announced uh, he would be resigning due to the fact uh, that his wife, uh, Rachel uh, Cambos, a Fox News contributor who is pregnant with his ninth child, apparently there was complications with her pregnancy, Uh, so now he is saying that he will be resigning um, to uh, spend more time with his family. Uh, This has triggered a uh, special election uh, right now, Real Clear Politics is uh, rating the special election as uh, lean Republican. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, Sean Duffy is uh, he's interesting. He's a funny guy. He was a sports commentator, and obviously he's a reality TV personality uh, who was on the Real World Boston, um, and uh, <laughs> you know came up through there. So he's like kind of a Trump before there was Trump. You know, reality TV turned politician. Um, but yeah, it's interesting he's going to resign, um, saying, you know, that his wife is having uh, some issues with the baby they're going to have. Um, yeah, I mean, Wisconsin is a pretty conservative place. You know, you got uh, Wisconsin. Isn't that, isn't that where, um, who's the governor out there, the guy who ran um, in 2016? Tony Evers is the Democratic governor. Oh, he's the Democratic governor. Yeah, Scott, Scott Walker, Walker, I think you're thinking of, he lost re-election last year to Tony Evers. Okay. 
Okay, so yeah, if Scott Walker lost, then you know it could be that maybe uh, Wisconsin might be swinging towards blue. But um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, whenever a congressional seat comes up, man, people people come out of the woodwork and um, want to run. But I mean, also too, he supported Donald Trump in 2016, so there's probably a lot of people who or maybe regretting their support of Trump or feeling like that will be some baggage they'll have to carry when they're running for re-election. So that could have factored into his decision as well. You can't really be sure. But um, that'll be that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to the next story. Uh, there are three uh, gubernatorial races this year, uh, one in Mississippi, uh, where uh, there is a uh, an open seat. Um, currently, there's a Republican serving, but he can't run for a third term due to term limits. Um, also in Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, the Democratic governor, hoping to win re-election. And in Kentucky, where Matt Bevin is in a hotly contested race for re-election, he's a Republican. Um, so right now, Republicans are hoping to hold their seat in Mississippi. But although Donald Trump won Mississippi by a large margin, some people think that the uh, that the Mississippi gubernatorial race could be a competitive one. The popular attorney general uh, of uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, Jim Hood, is the Democratic nominee uh, for governor, but Republicans still hope that the uh, that the Trump baggage could help them uh, win that election. Uh, right now, um, uh, as we reported last week, um, there was a competitive uh, match between uh, Bill Waller, the former Chief Justice of the Mississippi Supreme Court, and Tate Reeves, the Lieutenant Governor of Mississippi. Um, uh, neither of them reached 50%, so there had to be a runoff. We now know that Tate Reeves has won that runoff, and he will be the Republican candidate to face Jim Hood in the general election. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, the Mississippi gubernatorial race? Uh, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I'm not really watching that race, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't know a lot a lot about it. Um, you know, I'm kind of focused on um, what I'm doing up here in New Hampshire for Tulsi Gabbard, but. Uh, you know, as we mentioned before about Georgia, um, these are places where you would you would never think that uh, Democrats could be competitive, but if they actually went for it and uh, put some effort into it and, and, and put up a good candidate, they might be able to be competitive. So, um, it, you know, we'll just we'll have to watch it. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I, to be honest with you, I don't I don't really know a lot about it. I'm not I'm not really keeping up on Mississippi's uh, gubernatorial race at the moment. All right, so let's move on. So, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was recently uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, she is undergoing treatment. Uh, so far, the treatment is said to be uh, successful, but she's still undergoing treatment. Uh, what are your thoughts on uh, on uh, the uh, news about Ruth Bader Ginsburg being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer yeah rbg man she's tough she's been she's been in the game for a long time and uh you know she uh she's been on the supreme court for uh she got in there under clinton in 93 so she's been on the bench for 26 years 
Um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that she's going to be okay. I mean, obviously, you know, you hate to hear when anyone gets cancer. It's, it's horrible. Um, what is pretty ugly is people on the right who are kind of like doing a Ruth Bader Ginsburg death watch and like hoping that she dies so Trump can get another Supreme Court on there, uh, Supreme Court justice. I mean, she's uh, she turned 86 this year, so she's pretty old. Um, but she's an historic figure. She's the second female justice to ever serve. Um behind Sandra Day O'Connor, and I think she's kind of known to lean left, kind of be a reliable progressive and liberal on the bench to kind of balance out the more conservative, right-leaning justices that Trump has appointed. So a lot will argue that who you put on the Supreme Court will be the most, the biggest decision you'll make as president and one of the most consequential decisions and choices you make. So... I think for a lot of people, they want uh, Ginsburg to hang in there as long as she can, obviously, and, and be that voice there on the bench. And Trump would love nothing more than to get another uh, another justice through, which you know, I don't think he'd have any problem because he, he owns the Senate. I mean, the Republicans own the Senate, and they're going to kind of go with whatever Trump wants. So, um, But yeah, Ginsburg is an historic figure, man, and, and I think she's been a really interesting Supreme Court justice, um, and she has quite a cult following. Um, you know, being called the notorious RBG um, by people who are, you know, very liberal and they like they like that she's still fighting and she's hanging in there and despite, you know, a horrible cancer diagnosis, obviously pancreatic cancer is horrible, um, that she's hanging in there. So I hope she hangs in there and then I just hope that uh, if she's still up for doing the job, she'll still do it. But if she's not able to do it and then it kind of the cancer is, is, is taking its toll on her, that she'll retire and the process will play out. So we'll just have to see. All right. Um, so let's move on to the next story. Uh, the next story is inv- uh, involving uh, Brexit across the pond, uh, going a little across the pond. Um, but right now, uh, Prime Minister uh, Boris Johnson uh, is now saying that he uh, would like to get uh, Brexit done by the deadline on Halloween. Um and is saying that he will, um, and uh, is saying that he would like to make a deal, but he will uh, go forward with a no deal Brexit uh, if uh, 100% necessary. Um, uh, Johnson recently uh, got um, a declaration approved uh, to suspend Parliament for a month uh, this week. Uh, Parliament voting on whether to block a uh, a no deal Brexit or not. Johnson is threatening uh, a snap election on October fourteenth if uh, conservative MPs can't get a new Brexit deal done. Uh, or, or or no, he's threatening a uh, a snap election if conservative MPs uh, vote to block a no deal Brexit. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on uh, the uh, the drama surrounding Brexit? Yeah, well, Brexit, I think, is kind of part of a broader picture of hyper-nationalism that is going around the globe, whether it's here in America with Trump, whether it's in Brazil with Bolsonaro, um, you know, whether it's in Poland or Hungary or Italy, um, where we're seeing these kind of hard-right nationalist figures kind of inspired by your Steve Bannon type of, uh, you know, anti-immigration rhetoric, let's close our borders down, let's secure our borders, 
Um, let's make our country great again. Let's return to a real strong uh, national identity. So um, it's kind of no different over there in, in, in the United Kingdom. The Brexit thing is uh, its pretty messy. You know, obviously you saw it mark the end of Theresa May's uh, political career as prime minister and the height of her power. And she couldn't get that thing done or sorted out and ironed out. And then you saw a figure like Boris Johnson, who, uh, as Trump would say, they love, they love me over there. They love me over there. They call, they call Boris Johnson the English Trump. They love him. He's an interesting guy. I mean, you see the two of them. They're like twins. He kind of... Boris Johnson kind of looks like uh, Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber with his hair. Kind of reminds me of that. But uh, I don't know, man. I don't know how Brexit's going to turn out. There's uh, obviously a lot of ramifications to it uh, being tied into the European Union. All the economies are now linked to one another, and it's. I think it's just all knotted up and very hard for to get out of that system without some serious impact and hurt happening to their economy their local economy, their trade, trade routes, um, you know, partnerships with various companies, you know, people will lose their jobs. Um, it can be pretty messy. So I just think it's really hard in a globalized economy now. We're kind of all linked together globally. And I know Trump is doing the same thing with his tariffs with China. Um, the, the trade war that he's escalated and has going on with China right now. So I think in a lot of ways it's similar in the United Kingdom. I mean, obviously I don't live over there, so I don't know all the nuances but I know there are a lot of people who would like to, to see England leave the European Union and just be independent of it again. But I just don't know if that's reality based on how our economy is now a global economy. So um, I got time for a couple more, man. Okay. Uh, so the uh, why don't we go with one more? Um, and this is uh, involving uh, former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford. So Mark Sanford... <laughs> Uh, is was expected uh, to make an announcement today as to whether he would be, he's the re- former Republican governor of South Carolina, he served from 2003 to 2011, uh, he was expected to make an announcement today as to whether he would uh, announce his candidacy for the presidency. Uh, however, uh, Sanford is now saying he will delay that uh, due to uh, the impact of Hurricane Florence. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on Sanford's potential campaign, and what are your thoughts on him delaying his announcement? Well, if anything, I love that him getting in the race would just be another target for Trump, because when he was making, when Sanford initially was making noise about running, Trump was tweeting, Mark Sanford belongs down in Argentina. He should stay down there with his mistress. You know, I love Trump, who's been married three times and has cheated on every wife he's ever had, um, trying to come from a moral authority about that. Um, but yeah, you know what, man? Like your Bill Weld, your Mark Sanford, your Joe Walsh. Those guys are just wasting their time. They just want to get on TV, get their mug out there, um, and and try and attack Trump as a you know I'm the never Trumper alternative. I mean, Trump owns the Republican Party, man. He took over the Republican Party. He's got it. I just don't see any of these guys getting any traction at all. I mean, Bill Weld has been up here in my state, New Hampshire, for months and months campaigning. I mean, he's he's. No one, no one isn't, no one is excited or inspired about him. Like, oh, this guy could actually beat Trump. I mean, Mark Sanford. I mean, say what you will about his personal life, and uh, you know, that he cheated, was cheating on his wife, or had a mistress down there. I mean, you know, that that that's part for the course with American politics. They all, they all have mistresses. They all cheat. Some of them just don't get caught. 
Um, but what's interesting about Mark Sanford, I don't know if you saw the documentary about the family on Netflix about that shadowy religious organization who puts on the National Prayer Breakfast every year, and they have since the early 50s. But Sanford was part of that, and he kind of lived in like a rent-free townhouse on Capitol Hill there, right near the Capitol, and that was a little bit of a scandal for a while. John Enzyme from Nevada was part of that, too. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Sanford, obviously, if he comes up here, I'll probably meet him and see if I can interview him. The, the, the energy is just not, the energy and the desire for the Republican Party is just not there for someone to come in and challenge Trump. No one's going to really put a dent in the guy's armor. I think Trump is untouchable as far as Republicans go. I know John Kasich said that he might want to run. Kasich did really well up here in New Hampshire. He was a strong second place to Trump in the 2016 primary. But, um, you know, I just think all of them, are. it's an ego and a vanity project. I mean, in my opinion, Joe Walsh is an idiot. You know, he's just a far-right Tea Party buffoon um, who will just make an even bigger joke of himself if he really keeps running and challenges Trump. So, in my view, man, I think it's a waste of time, and obviously Trump and Pence will be the ticket. And um, I do hope Tulsi Gabbard will be the nominee for the Democrats, because um, I believe she's the strongest general election candidate to beat Trump. And I'm going to keep working hard to uh, get Tulsi that nomination and promote her campaign and platform. All right. Thank you again for joining us. Before you go, do you want to tell people where you can be found on social media and other platforms? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you, man, for, for doing the interview and, and asking me to come on. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, yeah, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Senator Jackman underscore. And then on Twitter, uh, Jackman Radio, at Jackman Radio. And my YouTube channel is just called Jackman Radio, so please go on there and subscribe. Um, we're working on lining up more candidates for really cool interviews and other political figures and authors and stuff. And then um, I'm on Facebook as Jackman Radio. And then if you want to stream my podcast, you go to www.podbean.com slash Jackman Radio. And all of our episodes are up on there from the last few years. And, um, you know, we're always working on putting out new content. And then I also have a Patreon page. Um, to help us continue to produce these videos and pay a professional videographer um, to interview these candidates. If you check out the quality of the interviews, I think it really sets apart Jack and Radio's interviews from other independent media. We put a lot into the quality, and we have a professional videographer we work with who's worked with you know, Paramount Studios and MTV and really big, big uh, production houses. So he does a great job with that. But it's uh, patreon.com slash jackmanradio. And we're just asking people to sign up for five bucks a month, um, the price of a cup of coffee. And as Trump would say, if you get it from Starbucks, it, it's disgusting. Okay, Howard Schultz is a loser. It's burnt coffee. So give us five dollars instead of buying Starbucks coffee. But uh, that's where you can find me, man. And uh, we're looking forward to keeping at it here in the primary and interviewing candidates and uh, keeping Jackman Radio going. All right. Thank you again for joining me. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for having me on, man. Take care. You too. Bye. And... If you think any of this wonkiness is going to deal with this dark psychic force of the collectivized hatred that this president is bringing up in this country, then I'm afraid that the Democrats are going to see some very dark days. She is the spiritual guru for Oprah Winfrey. She made headlines for her independent run for Congress in 2014. She has written multiple books about spiritualism. Who is Marianne Williamson, the acclaimed author seeking the White House? The candidates. Keep America great!
their story. Yeah, you're always, when you're young, you're always patted on the head and told that you're the future. But I'm interested in what you can bring to the present. And their fight for the White House. I'm the most progressive record of anybody running. If you look at Joe's record and you look at my record, I don't think there's much question about who's more progressive. Presidential Profiles 2020. How we could actually make this government work, not just for a thin slice at the top, but make it work for everyone else. I think that, sure, if people want to specula speculate about running mates, I encourage that, because I think that Joe Biden would be a great running mate as vice president. Marianne Deborah Williamson was born on July 8, 1952 in Houston, Texas to Samuel and Sophie, the youngest of three children. Williamson is of Russian descent. Williamson, who was raised in a conservative Jewish family, Williamson became inspired to become an activist during the Vietnam War when she participated in protests. After graduating from high school, Williamson started to take an interest in mystics, and spent her 20s unsure what to do with her life. She dropped out of college in 1973. She moved to New York to peruse a career in singing. However, she developed an addiction to drugs. She would later suffer from depression. Williamson has credited the book A Course in Miracles for turning her life around. Though she became fascinated in Christianity, Williamson has said the book did not convert her to the church. She returned to college, and ran a bookstore on campus. She bought a $1,000 apartment and was roommates with future actress Laura Dern, who was 17 at the time who states that Williamson who hold prayer groups in their living room. Williamson got a job at the Philosophical Research Society and started a lecture series about A Course in Miracles. At first, few attended her lectures, but as word spread, Williamson saw a spike in attendance prompting her to rent more church space. Williamson took off, and in 1993, she published her first book, A Return to Love. Reflections on the principles of A Course in Miracles became a New York Times bestseller for nearly 40 weeks and caught the attention of Oprah Winfrey. Williamson would later become Winfrey's spiritual guru. No, you are the best prayer I have ever known. Thank you, thank you. In 1993, Williamson published A Woman's Word. The book became also became a New York Times bestseller. She also published Illuminata that same year. The book became a USA Today bestseller. Williamson founded Project Angel Food to help people with AIDS and HIV. The project proved to be a success, raising $1.5 million. She resigned controversially in 1992 with rumors that gay activist Steve Schult forced her out. She had a secret marriage with an unknown husband for a number years before getting a divorce. She had one child during that time. In 1998, she started the Peace Alliance to promote prayer for liberal intentions. Williamson has proposed forming a U.S. Department of Peace. In 2007, she published The Age of Miracles. Embracing the New Midlife, the book became a USA Today bestseller. In 2014, she officially dipped her toe in politics. Hi, I'm Mary Ham Williamson, and I'm running for Congress. I'm running for the U.S. House of Representatives, California District 33. Running for California's 33rd Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, Williamson ran for the seat being vacated by Democrat Henry Waxman. 
who had served for 40 years. Running as an independent, Williamson gained endorsements from prominent Democratic politicians like former Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, former Florida Congressman Alan Grayson, former Michigan Governor Jennifer Granholm and former Independent Governor of Minnesota Jesse Ventura. She raised over $2 million but only received 13% of the vote, barring her from the ballot. In fall of 2018 however, she announced her candidacy for president in 2020. make New Zealand the place where it's the best place in the world for a child to grow up. And I will tell her girlfriend you are so on, because the United States of America is going Thanks. to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. Williamson has received polarized reactions for her stances on vaccinations, antidepressants and reparations for black people. She gained traction after her debate performances. She now hopes to be America's first woman president. For more Presidential Profiles 2020, keep it right here on Politics Weekly. Okay, uh, so um, so one of the questions I had, so right now the Democrats, they obviously raised um, their uh, the requirements to get into the debates. You used to have to have 65,000 individual donors to be on the debate stage, um, and you had to be getting 1% and three national polls. Uh, now you have to be getting 3% in five national polls, and you have to have uh, 130,000 uh, donors to be uh, on the debate stage. Do you think that that platform is healthy, or, or do you think that idea... Some people have argued that um, that's good because... You don't want 20 people all on the same stage arguing or bickering. Other people have said, uh, no, that's not right. We need to have more voices. Do you think uh, it's healthier or unhealthy? Do you think it's healthy or unhealthy for the discussion uh, to have uh, the debate requirements lifted or to have them heightened? Well, I think, I think it's a smart political strategy. Uh, I think the... the I think I think the Democrats understand that. Sorry, um, I think the Democrats understand that um, that they need they need a way to begin to narrow the field a little bit, and and I think one of one of the complaints coming out of the twenty sixteen election, especially on the Republican side, was, was uh, I think when there were, you know, 16 or 17 candidates, um, was that it was, it was really difficult to assess any of the candidates in any kind of meaningful way uh, because, there, because everyone was just, was just speaking. There were so many candidates, such a large number of candidates that, um, you know, at most somebody could speak for, for a few minutes. You know, in total, um, now, you know, Donald Trump uh, capitalized, I think, on that situation. He he found a way really to kind of break through in, in a lot of those debates and, and really to control to control the debate. Uh, so he worked it to his advantage. But um, there's there's really only one Donald Trump, and there's really no one on the Democratic side. I think that um, you know ha has the the um, 
there's really no one on the Democratic side, I think, that um, you know is going to use some of the tactics that, that Trump did to try to wrest control of the debate away from everybody else. You know, I think if anything, you know, the Democrat, the Democratic candidates want to avoid some of the, the trademark, you know, Trump style of debating, which is, uh, you know, which usually centers on, on name calling and insults and. And that type of thing. So, you know, Democrats are trying not to do that, but also, uh, you know, without doing that, it's tough to, to really separate yourself from the pack, right? So, uh, I think without this, you know, without uh, this kind of natural winnowing process, um, you know, you would just get debate after debate of. of Know, 20, 20 or so candidates, and it's just, it's really tough in that kind of situation with that size group to have a substantive discussion of the issues, and it's tough for the, the viewers at home to really, I think, get any real insight into where the candidates come down on, on the issues and, and what they would do if elected. Um, when you have a debate with 20 people, it's just, it's, it's going to be largely trading in sound bites. Um, so I, I think I think it's kind of a necessary thing for for the Democrats to do, and it's spark political strategy. For the ten candidates that didn't make it on to the debate stage, do you think that there's any way they could make up ground, or do you think it's over for them at this point? Well, I mean, you know, anything's possible, um, and you know, we're um, you know still uh, about fourteen months from the election. Uh, that is a very long time in politics. Uh, certainly a lot of things can happen uh, between now and then. But at the same time, uh, this is going to be an intensely competitive uh, election in 2020. And, um, you know, for the Democrats, uh, Donald Trump will be a, a formidable opponent who I think will be coming into this election. Um, with a lot of the advantages of incumbency, and uh, with uh, uh, you know, and, and that's you know that's going to give him some strengths that perhaps he didn't have uh, in 2016. Um, so uh, you know, on, on the Democratic side, unless a candidate, uh, you know, some, somebody who's who's really lagging in the polls, uh, unless unless they really have a breakthrough. Um, and, and real surge um, in support um, and, and begin to move, really jump in the polls and, and, and really gain in fundraising and stuff, um, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be really tough for them. Um, now, during the first debate, there was a lot of controversy uh, over the exclusion of Montana Governor Steve Bullock because uh, there originally... Uh, some people thought that he had made the requirement, but uh, it was revealed that one of the polls was too open-ended, so the Democratic National Committee didn't uh, count it, and that was controversial. During the second debate, there was controversy because former Alaska Senator Mike Gravel, I think he made the donor requirement, but he didn't make the polling requirement, so he wasn't invited to the debate. Um, right now, a lot of people uh, are upset about... Uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, being cut because there were two polls that people thought were qualifying polls, but they were later. The, D the Democratic National Committee 
uh, later said, um, later decided not to uh, include them. Um, do you think that um, this, do you think that this uh, type of controversy is going to hurt the Democratic National Committee in terms of brand, or do you think it won't affect them, or what do you think? I, I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to have much impact. I don't think it's it's I don't think it's something that, that um, you know many voters are going to be too concerned with. Um, you know, certainly for for political insiders and, and people who follow a polling, you know, very very closely, and who um, you know pay a lot of attention to polling methodology, and eh, something that you know might. Um, you know, it's something that they might um, uh, be concerned about, but but I think the political issues facing the country and the, the, the divisiveness right now, and, uh, and just the, the, the very strong emotional feelings that people on both sides um, have about politics right now, I don't I don't think that um, I don't think that an issue like that is, is really going to register a whole lot. All right, thank you, sir. There, um, just a couple a couple things that I thought of. Um, you know, one thing um, one thing that may be happening with these with these debates is, is some of the some of the Democrats that are that are really you know um, far behind in the polls or or who you know are trailing and not quite in that top tier. Um, they may see these debates as an opportunity to um, uh, try to increase their name recognition. Um, uh, build a little bit of appeal. They may be eyeing um, potentially uh, being named the vice president, or maybe maybe they're um, maybe they've got their eyes in the cabinet uh, position, or, or maybe you know a future run for office. So um, so some of the people on the debate stage may be well aware that they're 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 not going to win the nomination, and uh, but are trying to stay in um, because they're making a play for. Being the the VP nominee or being a, a cabinet secretary or, or some other you know um, some other they may have some other goal like that so I just wanted to throw that point in there. All right.